Welcome to episode 55 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. After an extended summer break, the guys and I are back with season three of the show, which is certain to be full of a whole lot of camera gas discussion, inside jokes, and all around tomfoolery. My name is Mike Ekman, and joining me on this fine September evening, slowly digging himself out of Leica apocalypse, is Paul Reibold. Hey, Paul, have you been able to get rid of all those black Leicas? I haven't gotten rid of them. I still got the black paint M4, but uh, I got rid of all three of the black paint M10s. What a burden. It's a burden, but somebody's got to shoulder it. Next, from Gainesville, Florida, a man who, as a small business owner, always has lots of free time on his hands, Mr. <laughs> Anthony Rue. What is it like owning your own coffee shop, a place that basically runs itself without any input from you? Oh, I'm just glad that we are a coffee shop because without espresso, I would be nothing. I would just be, you know, you'd, you'd be scraping me up off the floor after about the hour 10 or 11 or 12 of each day. And finally, from Sydney, Australia, a land where it literally goes from winter straight to extreme summer heat, it's Theo Panagopoulos. Hey Theo, do you have any upcoming travel plans to get away from the extreme Australian heat? Yeah, I think I might have to go up north into the Northern Hemisphere soon just to get a break from it. We're hitting 35 degrees today, which I think is about 93 in, in your language. And, and it's third week into spring. So uh, summer started very early here. Traveling is a good segue into one of the topics we thought we would talk about tonight. Travel and photography. What are your favorite cameras to take on trips? How do you decide what goes and what stays? And what kinds of tips do you have for dealing with airport security? But first, we have some people in the waiting room. So let's open the doors and let them all in. That was a smooth segue. That like. was good. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say something like you did. So it worked out perfectly. Oh, full house again. Yeah, we got a so much for my four. All right, we have a full house of people. We have some returning uh, guests, some familiar faces. Howard Sandler, Patrick Raps is back. Mark Faulkner, Miles Lieback. Uh, I do see a couple names I don't recognize. Um, Mina, is that? Hey, um, how you doing? Yeah. Hey, do you introduce yourself? Sure, sure. My name is Mina. I'm a next door neighbor to Theo in terms of being in Sydney. Um, first time caller, but very long time listener. Awesome. <laughs> well, glad to have you. We have Kevin K. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. I don't recognize you. Looks like you're in a car. I am in a car. I'm outside my daughter's dance studio, which is normally where I'm sitting during the week. Um, I'm just outside <laughs> St. Louis, Missouri, though, for the most part. I'm in southern Illinois. All right. Maxwell, you've been on the show before, haven't you? Hello. Yeah, I have. I was uh, plagued by technical issues last time, but uh, I think everything's going to be fine tonight. All right. And John Roberts, welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yes, Sounds we can. Great. Perfect. All right. Well, welcome, guys. Um, for those of you who've been on the show, you know how this works. If this is the first time being on the live recording, just know that we do a lot of editing. So there's going to be some dead spots. There's going to be some points where we trail off into topics that get removed. So you get to see a little behind the, the curtains of, of how these shows go. But um, we're back. This is season three. We pondered a whole bunch of changes. We were going to replace all the hosts. Uh, I did some auditions for a new theme song. We were thinking of switching topics all together and just decided to do nothing different. And we're just going to keep doing the same stuff we've been doing, <laughs> uh, which is fine by me. So I'm, I'm really happy to be back. Um, I, you know, personally just been so busy. This summer has been nuts. We kind of talked a little bit on the Unplugged show. That that truly was spontaneous. I and mean, that's always been the theme of this show ever since Cocaine and Waffles. But uh, even though we were away, Anthony, Theo, Paul, and I continue to stay in touch, you know, through Facebook and we would chit and chat. And, and one night we just, we were all free and we're like, Hey, let's just record a quick show. Um, so we kind of just did that. We didn't really invite anybody else. Uh, we didn't even make the show announcement public at all. So that was a lot of fun. So for tonight, you know, we're going to start off uh, talking about 
um, travel and photography. What kinds of cameras do you bring on trips? How do you make the decision on what you bring with you? Uh, what stays home? Maybe for those of you who've, who've traveled through airports recently, what kind of tips and tricks do you have for getting through airport security? That seems to be kind of a common question that I see get asked in, in a lot of the uh, film photography groups because you know, with digital, generally, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. I always think it's kind of cool. Like when I'm waiting in security, you still see the little signs on the wall about film. When I see that sign, I always wonder, like, how many, you know, younger people see that and like, don't even know what that's a picture of. Like, what does that mean? Theo's got a, a trip coming up soon. So, Theo, have you started to kind of um, put together a, a, a wish list of, of what you're intending on bringing? Yeah, we're looking at going back into Asia and uh, I'm starting to look at what I want to take and what I did Earlier in the years, I had a trip to Vietnam and took a Nikon FE, uh, a the Nikon L thirty five AF, and the Ikonta C six four six by nine, and I found that to be a pretty good combination. You know, the FE being rugged, changing lenses, etc. I did take a Micro Four Thirds camera as well as a bit of a backup with one lens, just so I could sort of adapt onto that with the Nikon lenses. It it worked out a good good combination but i think with this trip coming up i want to be a little bit more rangefinder focused so i'm starting to look at which rangefinder i want to take maybe one of the likers um a couple of focal lengths and uh and then i do want to consider what i want to take from medium format and again it'll probably be a folder because they're, they're just so convenient like one of the super contas again you always tr try to bring at least one digital on a trip i i do but i try to keep that small um so it'll either be one of the little compact digitals in fact that's a good segue. Um, we we're talking about a trip that Anthony's got coming up to um, Japan, I think. And one of the cameras that he was talking about is the the Lumix LX series. I think he's got the LX one. I've got the LX three here. That that's actually a, yeah a good option because it shoots raw. It's compact, fits in almost any pocket, and it's just yeah the quality is just out of this world. So. It, it depends what I want to do. If I want to adapt lenses, I'll tend to stick to the, the micro four thirds because they're just so small and I want to focus on film personally. Anybody, uh, one of our listeners, what do you guys think? Any Who's taken a trip recently and what was your process? I think, John, you were down here, weren't you? I was. I uh, went and visited you there for uh, an That's evening right. there, Theo. Um, yeah, I was just actually in Australia. I live in Vancouver, BC. Um, and I was down in Australia, Sydney for three weeks and had a meetup with Theo one evening. And I did go through a lot of stress of what I was going to pack. And I ended up taking one digital camera, my Nikon Z5. And then I had my Canon F1. And then I shared the same three lenses between the two cameras. So I had a 24, 3.5, a 55, 1.4, and a 85, 1.9 all SuperTax M42s. And then I had the adapter to fit the Nikon F or the Canon F1. It's a good selection. I um, I gave you a thumbs up uh, on the Z5, the Z5 for us Americans. You know, I've had this camera now for a little bit. Um, I've had Fuji mirrorless. I've had Sony mirrorless and they're all great. I mean, there are great things. They're all going to make awesome images. But um, for, for my money, in terms of full frame digital mirrorless, I'm going to declare the Z5 as the best bargain camera out there. Nikon took away just enough to keep the cost down. Like it doesn't have the top LCD screen. It just has physical knobs, but they retain the same sensor and processor as the Z6. It has, I believe, the exact same EVF. You know, it, it's it's a heck of a camera. And uh, you're already starting to see 
used copies of, of Z5s for under a grand out there. So that's that's my choice too. Um, so I'm answering one of my own questions. Uh, when I do go on trips with film cameras, I, I do try to bring at least one digital. You know, I, I don't, it's not like I don't want to shoot digital, but you know, with, with kids and stuff like that, it, it is nice to have something that I, you know, if I want to hand it to somebody else, just put it on full auto and, and not have to explain, you know, to anybody mm-hmm. how to use digital, but that's, that's a good call. John, you were down here. I was actually up in Canada last year. And what I chose to take was an F801 with two autofocus lenses and the Hasselblad. And I ditched digital entirely because I was surrounded by family and every family member has the latest iPhone or Samsung. And therefore I'm pretty much 110% covered that digital images from every angle are going to be taken and they're going to be shared quite quickly and they're going to be editable. I don't do any really post editing. So I tend to rely wholly on the lab. I may crop later if I really feel like it. So I sense that just focusing on the quickest usage cameras for family snapshots. And that would have been the F801. Or if I was feeling a bit more arty uh, and going into the city of Toronto or into Mississauga or into um, city of Montreal, I would take the Hasselblad and it could all fit quite neatly into a backpack. But to come back to your question, um, Mike, getting through airports, I think you just needed to be really nice, really well prepared. So turn up early with the film in a clear bag, don't make it difficult for the people who are doing the scanning. Uh, at times, the, all of my camera gear would be pulled out of the bag because it looked pretty suspicious having these boxes with lenses and, and the amount of space it was taking up in the bag versus my actual clothing. Uh, so they they often would be like, you know, you need to take that out and show it to us and they'd swab it. And, you know, how I look physically isn't really that uh, that uh, that that uh, comfortable for a lot of people as they go through airports. Um, but overall, I think once you once you make it easy for, for those um, people who are manning those uh, those desks, you've got a better chance. The only airport I would say I've never had a good experience with with film has been Los Angeles. They are not really open to the idea of spending time looking at your film, but everywhere else, like North other airports in North America, Australia, and in um, and in Europe, were fine. Yeah, there is a couple of exceptions that keep coming up, though. Um, I believe Melbourne in Australia has got a you know no hand check type policy. Oh, right. And so does London, and I'm not sure about Amsterdam. There's there's a few airports like that which are uh, are actually you have to work hard to get hand scans, and they'll only hand scan anything that's above a certain level of ISO. ISO. Mm. Yeah. Well, I will say that there are fewer and fewer benefits to being a U.S. citizen on a weekly basis, it seems. However, if you are a U.S. citizen and you can get global entry, which is a sort of a vetted by TSA certificate, you actually get a little ID card that allows you to skip the standard TSA uh, inspection route. You have your own dedicated line. Last time I flew to Montreal earlier in the spring uh, at Orlando Airport, the um the line to go through your standard TSA checkpoint to get to the terminal was about 90 minutes. There were three people in line at the TSA line. And yeah. so I woke up, I walked up and I cheerfully said, Hey guys, I'm a camera photographer or a film photographer. And I've got this bag of film. Would you all mind hand checking it? And they said, Oh yes, sir. Of course. And that's been my experience. Every time I've gone through a TSA checkpoint that uh, they are, less stressed they are under less time constraints there's no like interrupting and holding up the line i mean if you've got a line that's a a 90 minute wait 
uh, they're going to be much less likely to be accommodating to hand scanning your film than if you're in the uh, the global entry line and uh, you know there might be five minute wait at tops. So so it costs a little bit of money. Most uh, travel credit cards will actually reimburse you for your global entry, and it's um it's my secret weapon for moving around certainly in and out of the U.S. Um, with film. So the the general belief is it's ISO 800 and up is where you really have to worry about the scanners. Depends. Some of the new scanners are much, much more Strong, powerful right. That's and what much I was more likely scanners. to fog your film. Has anybody here had like that actually happen where a, their their film was ruined by some kind of airport scanner? Has that happened? No, my, my one data point that first of all, I think in Canada, we don't have those powerful CT type scanners yet. Uh, my one data point was uh, taking a flight in domestic flight in Canada with uh, Fuji Instax film, and I, I didn't notice anything wrong with the film. It went through well, no, because then I shot it, so it it only went through once, really. I agree with everything that's been said here. I mean, you know, I've only flown in the United States since I've been shooting film, but um, I, you know, I flew back and forth to Los Angeles twice this year. I've taken trips before. Um, when I came back from LA, both times I was by myself, so all I needed was a backpack with my clothes and like, you know, bathroom stuff in it, but I still had a full size luggage full of cameras. So like I had far fewer clothes um, than I had this huge suitcase full of cameras. And, and I was expecting the worst, you know, I got there at the airport every time with, you know, minimum two hours, like they always say, but you want to give yourself more time and, you know, reverse Murphy's law kicked in and I prepared as much as I could. And I got through security like a breeze, you know, no issues. My experience has been, be as pleasant as possible. Like like you all said, have your film, the stuff that you actually do want hand checked in a, in a large like gallon size Ziploc bag. I, I read in one of the other groups, someone actually went to the step to take the film actually out of like the cardboard box, you know, and, and have that individually sitting in, in the cassette. So to, to decrease the amount of time if they choose to swab, because they don't always do that. But um, if they have to swab stuff, then you want to speed up anything they have to disassemble, you know, while while you're going through there. Yeah, I always take the film out of its little out of the little plastic tubs, but I do find that they do get a little bit mixed up a little bit when you have the 120 film in the foil, and that's the only time on the trip where I went to Vietnam earlier in the year, where in Singapore they said, "Oh, we quite don't know what to do with this stuff in the foil," and it was low ISO, it was ISO 50, and they weren't using CT scanners, so I just let them put that one through um, that one time. But it is, um, it, yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on there, Mike. Uh, you just got to make it as easy as possible and take everything out so they can see what it is. Um, because that's what they're worried about is if they can't see what it is, they can't let you on the plane. When I travel, and I travel fairly extensively for work to Central and South America, uh, I've never had uh, a real issue with the film, but I've had quite an adventure bringing back agricultural samples from places like El Salvador and Honduras, uh, where I had cacao samples and coffee samples from farms where, you know, they might have like nitrate fertilizer and bags around and boy, do those set off the little swabs. You get very special treatment when your little swabs set off the explosive detector. Um, I, you know, I've had like very, uh, let's just say precise and exacting inspections of every single thing that I owned. <laughs> Good luck getting into Australia like that, Anthony. Like we have a whole yeah. show dedicated to that stuff. Oh, it was insane. It was insane. Everything is swabbed. Are any of you old enough to remember film shield bags? Oh yeah. I've I seen one. Film shield bags were, they were lead lined bags that uh, SEMA sold 
and then they sold them from sizes varying from holding 10 rolls to holding 40 rolls. Mm-hmm. And they were basically just a, a bag that had a lead lining and, you know, they were marketed to protect your film against the x-ray. But what would happen is they would x-ray it. They couldn't see through the lead. So they just turned the power up. So they they turn it up to the point where you could actually see it glowing inside the, the, uh, the machine. I always wondered about those bags that I would think that if you were lucky, they'd see an opaque thing, they'd go through it by hand, but it, it always occurred to me, they would, they tend to, to go back and forth a few times when they're not sure what they're seeing. Yeah. And they did that. And usually you'd wind up getting hand inspected anyway. I mean, you get pulled off and they, they check you out. My last go around with film when I was traveling extensively to Europe, I was, I was going to, to London via Toronto. I traveled at that point with uh, Pelican boxes, which are about five by eight inch boxes that are about four inches deep. They're deep enough that you can get a roll 120 film standing on end. And so I would travel with four of those. I would have two with 120 film and, and two with, with 35 millimeter. And uh, I carried them on and I, I had a bag that I, I carried them in. I got to Toronto and I went through the inspection and the uh, the guy who inspected me took all of them out of my bag and only put three of the four back in. And, and I didn't notice it till I got to London. Actually, I didn't notice it till I got up into Yorkshire. I found that I only had half as much 120 film as I thought I had. So I may do it a month later, I get back to Toronto and I go to security and they had my box. They held it the whole time? Yep, they had kept wow. it. Wow. I mean, they had not disposed of it. They had just uh, put it in lost and found. I explained what had happened and they were very apologetic. I mean, they were very polite about it. Um, they were Canadian. Yes. Yeah. Uh, honestly, you know, I, I I should blame them. I'm if I'd been on my game, I would have I would have paid more attention to what they were putting back in my bag. If I can follow up, as we were having our host chat before the uh, the podcast, uh, Paul was showing us his cameras that he took with him to Ireland in 2017, and it really wasn't a picture of cameras that one would take on vacation, but a picture of Paul's table from the last camera show. <laughs> Uh, where you, you, there was no table to be seen for all of the lenses and camera bodies that were on there. And then I showed Paul what I had taken to Ireland the year before, and it was a, uh, a Minox, uh, 35 GTE and a Lumex GF three with a 12 millimeter, uh, Lumex lens. And that was it. When I travel in the United States and I'm sort of car camping, so to speak, I will drag along you know, a shelf's worth of cameras, you know, I might take the Graflex and might take the G617. But if I'm traveling by backpack someplace, I'm looking for the smallest possible footprint that I can, uh, that I can possibly use. So I've got a trip coming up to uh, uh, Japan in November, and I'm totally kind of actually flummoxed now with what I'm going to take because I've, I've got more cameras to choose from these days. You know, part of me wants to take a, a beautiful historic camera like the Zeiss 10X where it's square format and I get more shots per roll. Part of me is like, oh my God, that camera's 80 years old. Do I really want to travel with that. Thinking about the Voigtlander Procaro 2, which is probably the smallest 6x6 120 camera that has ever been made. And yet, you know, I don't think I really want to take an SLR or even a DSLR, but maybe uh, something like uh, the Olympus XA4 or one of my Minox or Voigtlander 35 millimeter folders, uh, maybe something shooting 120 
and then a wild card camera, which I haven't quite figured out what that third camera would be. Uh, but I do think that I'm going to try to do this entire trip and I've never been to Japan before. So I really don't know like what is great for shooting in that environment, you know, both, you know, that, that sort of urban environment of Tokyo, but also getting out into the countryside. Want to try to cover all of my bases with three cameras. I went to, uh, on a trip to Israel a few years ago, I, I schlepped a, uh, Veronica SQA with two lenses shot a couple of rolls and I took a Raleigh 35, not, not the good ones. The, uh, what's the one that has the triatar lens, the 35 B because yeah. I, it was only 15 bucks. And I figured if I got sand in it at the beach, who cares? And you guess which one I used? I used the Raleigh. I shot like three or four 36 frame rolls. Everything came out. It never malfunctioned. It was wonderful. I actually regret I ended up selling it and getting a fancy Raleigh 35S with the sonar lens. But because it's more expensive, I baby that one. I don't know if I would take that one on an international trip. The Raleigh 35B was fabulous. That's my challenge is, you know, I, I am just paranoid about bringing valuable cameras or stuff that's, that I'm worried I could damage. I have kids, so a lot of times when I'm traveling, there's children involved, and, and you don't always have the time to be setting up a tripod with a 116 folder, you know, where it's manual, everything. So finding that right balance is something that you could shoot quickly, easily, doesn't have too high a value because if something were to break, you know, like you said, Howard, if if that 35B got stolen or even just damaged, you know, you'd be a little sad, but you're going to be much more sad if you were to drop a you know, an M6 or something like that. So, you know, I, I, that's a struggle for me as any, and I don't even mean like flying internationally. Like sometimes we just go visit family, you know, the next state over. Um, I've learned that if I bring too many cameras, I, I just don't get to them all. And it stresses me out. Like I, I actually will get anxiety trying to remember what do I have? What do I have to shoot? And no matter how much effort I put into labeling, which rolls of film are already loaded into which cameras, I almost always forget. You know, it's like, oh, crap, that was Neopan 400, and I thought it was Pan X or something like that, or I thought it was color when it was black and white. And, you know, I, I've tried – I went and got those Avery – garage like stickers when you go to a garage sale the circular it's like red green yellow blue you know and i i tried to devise a system color coded i'd use a sharpie to write the speed on the sticker and stick it on the back and it never worked i i i just couldn't do it consistently so i don't have a good solution other than um not trying to overcomplicate myself yeah look patrick raps is like he's using is that painter's tape yes yeah, no, blue tape well. yeah blue tape's yeah. great you know it, it all comes down to me as we tra we travel and we travel for photography. I mean, that's why I travel. I don't travel to to go to museums and look at things. I don't travel to uh, uh, for I, I travel to eat because I like to eat, and I travel for for photography. And, and that's the way it's always been. I mean, that's that's it's over forty years, probably closer to fifty years. I've been doing that. So when I when I travel, I, I take the cameras that I want to take and I shoot them. And I take a lot. I mean, we've gone on vacation. Chris took an RB67 with three lenses to England one year. I mean, in her carry-on. I mean, it's it's you you make the sacrifice. You figure out what you want to do, where you're going to go, and, and you you take your cameras accordingly. Now, what I do, I, I bought a. Uh, uh, it wasn't cheap. It was a couple of hundred bucks. A a, a bag, a, a rolling case that fits in an overhead, but it's a four wheel spinner. 
So you set it down. It sits on all four wheels. You can push it with one hand. I put the cameras and lenses in that bag, all wrapped up in donkey wrap. It doesn't look like a camera case. It probably weighs this next trip to England. It's going to weigh probably 30 pounds. But I can get it into the overhead. Uh, when I get so old that I can't get a, a bag into the overhead, then I got to go to plan B. But, you know, it, it just depends on why you travel. If, if, if you're traveling with your family and it's a family event, that's one thing. If you're going just to take pictures and, uh, and make art, or that's really a stupid thing to say, but if you're traveling to make photographs, then you, you do what you got to do for that reason. I have a, I have a, a comment and a question. I'll do the comment first. You talked about the fear of losing cameras. The last time I was in Colombia, I spent a month working on very small, very, very remote uh, coffee farms. And I had taken my Pentax MX with the pancake lens, uh, a, 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 a Minox B, and a Voigtlander C, which is the Balda made uh, folding uh, Voigtlander. And sure enough, as I was getting ready to leave, I was actually on my phone calling for the Uber to the airport when my bag was stolen and I lost all three cameras and every bit of film that I had shot for that, that month. And they also got my passport out. So uh, on one hand, the sort of the uh, espionage level thrill of getting out of Colombia and into the United States without a passport sort of kept me from thinking about the camera loss until until I was back home. And boy, was that ever an adventure. Try explaining to TSA how you got into the uh, airport in Fort Lauderdale without a passport from Medellin, Colombia. Uh, it looks a little uh, dicey. And But, you know, the camera losses were pretty horrible. You know, I mean, I lost three good cameras, but it was losing all the film that really mm, stung. Sure. You yeah. know, so anymore when I travel, I actually keep my camera and my film separate. Uh, I just, you know, if... If there's the possibility that you're a target because you've got your cameras and somebody might have noticed you putting your camera in your bag, don't risk your camera and your film being together. You know, keep them separate. Uh, certainly, if you're in places like where I was and you know some of the parts of Medellin where we were, not exactly you know tourist areas where you know they have they have a, they have a saying there: don't give papaya, don't be flashy to give somebody a reason to try to steal your stuff. And sometimes just simply putting a camera in and out of the bag is is giving papaya. That's a good tip. Keep the film and camera separate. That's yes. So then my question is, you know, as I as I go to as I go to to, to Tokyo and to Japan this this next month, um, yeah, I have uh, my Panasonic Lumex camera. I've got my uh, GF3, which I think is like twelve years old, ten years old, and because I don't shoot that much digital, I haven't really even looked to see what current options are. If you were looking for a compact either micro four thirds or even a, just a fixed lens camera that didn't break the bank that was just sort of like a backup digital camera does anybody have any recommendations for cameras that they uh they think would make a good travel camera i'm all about the little rico gr right now as a pocket camera it's my daily camera going to and from work whenever i go to like parties and stuff like that right now it, it's so tiny it's fits perfectly. I've got just this tiny little satchel under my arm that has the Ricoh GR uh, 3X, uh, the one with the 40 mil. And then I've got my little uh, Roli 35, uh, the original made in Germany version. And it's just a perfect little pairing for me. What, what do you have there, Paul? That's a Ricoh GR. <laughs> it's the, uh, this is one that came from Kurt's collection. This is the, a, uh, 
a limited edition they made, I think, in 2018. The cool thing about it is I, I'm, I'm sold on it. I mean, it's really a great little camera. It has a 28 millimeter fixed lens. It's an APS-C size sensor. So it's a, it's a decent size sensor. It is um, a 28 millimeter fixed lens, but you can stick this on it and it turns it into a 21 millimeter lens. So I'm all about wide angle. So I just leave it on here. I bought the TT Artisan Finders, a 21 and a 28. These things are $43 a piece. Fits on the shoe. So you don't have to, uh, you don't have to be arm's length photography with uh, using the back screen. Uh, it's a it's a very cool little viewfinder, but I agree the GR is just a great little uh, carry camera. And Anthony, this is this is one I would definitely recommend. Any of the Ricoh GR series are, are very. Paul, you're a fan of those Canons, the GX. Yes, right. Yeah. The, what are those? Yeah. The uh, what is it? What what did we buy? The Gs, the G G5s, G6s. Yeah. All the way up to the G10s and G11s. Those are great. Very durable. Cameras. They're a little heavier than, yeah, than yeah. Uh, a lot of them are today, but they're really good quality cameras. Before I went to LA, I actually bought a Panasonic Lumix LX100. That's a micro four thirds compact point and shoot, 20 megapixel. It's you know it's got a Leica branded lens, but, but what attracted me to it is at the wide angle, it's got a maximum aperture of F17, which for a point and shoot is, is pretty fast. Um, I ended up returning the camera because it was malfunctioning. So I didn't have the best experience with it. But um, it, once it was the few times I got it to work, the build quality just seemed incredible. I mean, it just it felt great in the hands. It has an EVF. I didn't really use it too much because the rear screen was very, very good. Um, so while I, I didn't have the best uh, experience with that one, um, I was very impressed with the Lumix LX100. Earlier, we were talking about just the regular Lumixes. I, I don't remember all the model numbers. The, the more rudimentary ones are still very good. You know, any of the Lumixes with the LX usually have a Leica branded lens. You know, Panasonic Panasonic did a pretty good job with a lot of those. You know, they have all the features you want. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, Anthony, I guess it just depends on whether you want a fixed lens or an interchangeable. Us being the geeks we are, you know, I feel like I tend to keep leaning towards the interchangeables, but they're not as compact. You know, the the Lumix is going to fit in a, a shirt pocket. Even the smallest Sony Alpha or whatever with interchangeable lenses, you know, you mount a, a Jupiter 8 or something on it, it that thing's going to, it's not going to fit in your pocket. But, but there's actually a, an argument here for Anthony from what he was sort of going through in terms of what he's thinking about because you mentioned the pen f didn't you anthony is to, I, I did SLR. the pen f the pen f would be my dslr that i would take then something like this a micro four thirds lumix um this is the gx7 i think there's a gx8 out i'm not sure but i've been using this for years and this is fantastic it actually with the adapter you can put the pen f lenses on it so then you get the dual purpose of being able to use your you know your wonderful pen f and then when you feel like a bit of digital, sticking those same top quality lenses onto the, the actual digital camera. The, my GF3 is a micro four thirds, but the only adapter I have is an exacted a micro four thirds. And I use the uh, big honking Biogon from the exact uh, Varix that I have uh, on it because uh, it's like a fairly wide lens. And it, you know. yeah. Do you need micro four thirds adapters, Anthony? 
<laughs> I might. <laughs> <laughs> I have three whole boxes of them. And Paul's pulled out a whole bunch of them. Please, if anyone needs any pin after micro fur thirds adapters, see me. <laughs> From an argument point of view, in terms of being able to multi multi use, that that's actually not a you know an idea to consider. That is actually well, and I'll, and I'll say just just to point this out. The, the original film PANF, those lenses were designed to cover an 18 by 24 millimeter frame. And that is almost exactly the size of APS-C. There's almost no crop. I mean, there, might, there, there might be like a tiny, tiny crop factor, but it's it's damn near insignificant. Your coverage is perfect. Plus those old PANF film lenses were just razor, razor sharp. They are very ideal to be adapted to to modern digital. So for for someone looking for like both digital and film, the Pen F, I would 100% agree is is a is not only a great film camera to have, but those lenses adapt very well. And and also if you're you know concerned a little bit with the micro four thirds in terms of low light, I mean it it does have a bit of you know bit of a bad rap that way. The new um, you use Lightroom, don't you, Anthony? Yeah, that that's um, the new AI um, noise reduction feature. I, I can tell you what it, it is absolutely amazing. Um, I, I used it on photos from Vietnam in the markets at night, and I could you you couldn't tell the difference whether you use yeah. the full frame or not. It is just amazing. I I fell victim to well, Micro Four Thirds is even smaller than APS-C. It must be bad, and I didn't. I never even considered trying them, but. Um, another Kurt camera I have is this monster. This is an Olympus OMD. It's called the EM1X. It's, I mean, it's freaking huge. And this, this is a micro four thirds camera. Um, and I've been playing with it a little bit. And, and like you just said, Theo, I've taken some pictures with it. You know, it shoots raw. Um, I've pulled it into Adobe Photoshop CC and the images look, I mean, I, maybe if I pixel peeped, maybe, but I mean, just at, at full screen on my computer monitor, uh, between the Z5 and and this thing, I mean, it's they're they're both very very good. It's I was impressed. Paul, is that a, a, a Olympus Pen Digital? It is. This is uh, the Pen Light, the EPL5, which is tiny, but it's got the finder on it. And this is interesting. Uh, this has the fisheye lens, which is you can see how small it is, but it's uh, it's actually a fisheye. It has uh, it's three focus ranges on it. But it's unbelievably sharp. I mean, they're dirt cheap, but I just leave this particular lens on this camera. If anybody here needs the EVF for one of those Olympus cameras, I have like five of them. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> they just clip. They clip in on the top. There's a little port, and then they yeah. slide into the hot shoe. Yeah, I have like five of them. That's you know, <laughs> we'll talk about this. It's it's amazing how many things that we're finding that. Uh, there were duplicates on or quadruplicates or or 20 of you just it just uh, boggles your mind to try to figure out why well i don't mean to get off topic but it's something i literally found today i found this in a bag with lens caps i saw this little thing and i thought it was a, a lens cap but it's actually a color minotaur so this is from like a minox like a 35 ml or gt somebody hacked the lens off one of those tiny little like where the front like door folds down those little Dag, tiny Dag does that yeah it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a dag oh is it okay yeah yeah, yeah yeah so it's got an m39 screw mount on the back yep, of it yep that's that's a that's a dan goodman hack. oh well i didn't know that well i have yeah. one <laughs> that's very nice 
Yeah. All right. So anyway, so we've spent a ton of time on travel cameras. I don't want to cut anybody short. looks like we already lost somebody. Maxwell, did you have anything you wanted to contribute? Any uh, tips or tricks that you found? I would love to contribute a story here because I think I have found the uh, greatest travel camera of all time, and I will not be taking uh, any corrections. Um, (laughs) I I went to uh, New York City this uh, last February, and I brought a a Yashica Electro 35, the uh, GSN. And I very quickly realized that I really wasn't a fan of it. I wasn't a fan of using it. And I didn't really realize that until I got into the nitty gritty of it. So I ended up selling it at a camera store and getting a Raleigh 35. I wasn't really a fan of zone focusing. But uh, the other day at the camera show in Cincinnati, I bought from our very own Paul Reibolt, Minox B. And this thing has made some incredible photographs. I am so over the moon with it i've been putting 400 speed color film in it and it's beautiful i've been meaning to put some in the uh, facebook group i think i've spammed the uh, minox groups enough that i don't think they want to hear from me anymore No, you posted some on facebook i saw the picture that you shot Uh, yeah i think i think some of them are in some of the sub miniature groups but for a travel camera the only thing that worries me is uh if i was to bring it through an airport you know, most people know what 35 millimeter film looks like, but if I show them a Minox cartridge, what are they going to think? So if anybody's traveled with Minox recently, I'd love to hear. I take a, I take a Minox B or C with me wherever I go. Like anytime I, I like leave the county, I've got a Minox with me. So I've traveled, yeah. I've traveled around the world with them and never had an issue. So I'll, I'll ask a newbie question. How do you get film for that? And how do you process the film? <laughs> I will buy the cartridges and then I have... And I'd recommend this for anybody who uh, shoots film as a whole. Find a friend who has a 3D printer because I had this guy 3D print me a little slitter and I would go grab it, but I'm a little lazy, that slits a roll of 35 millimeter down to two 9.2 millimeter strips. And then all of the cartridges are reloadable by default. So it's incredibly easy to do. And then I've got a 3D printed reel I use and it's it's a breeze. I've got a DSLR scanning setup over here. It's... Uh, pixelator is the company that makes it and uh, it's able to do minox by default so i have a bunch of extension tubes and a micro nicor uh, 55 millimeter and i've gotten some beautiful beautiful pictures out of it i agree i i, I have a slitter that takes 120 and slits it into four uh so you get you get eight rolls of film out of one roll of 120 and so that's pretty darn economical if you if you buy like the foma 100 where it's like five dollars a roll now you're talking about pennies per roll of, of Minox film. You reload the cartridges. And then I've got one of the original Art Deco Bakelite Minox developing tanks, which are a work of art in themselves, where it just, it's got this like a uh, tank that where it just it's got a screw top that you screw it down and it pulls the film out of the cartridge and holds it uh, in a channel. Then it uses a quarter cup of developer. Uh, so it's incredibly economic. Uh, and then I scan with my, with my Epson V700, and a couple of pieces of, of Newtonian glass. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just, it makes it, it's cheaper than shooting 35 millimeter when you're set up like that. You know, you, you I mean, you're literally talking about maybe, you know, 65 cents a roll uh, for the film and then developing it. It's, it's pennies. And yeah, for uh, economy, nothing beats it. It's, yeah. It's, um, now, you if know, you're buying, if you're buying from Blue Moon and having them develop it, you're looking at like $35 a roll. Uh, so it isn't economical, but if you can do it yourself, uh, it's, it's just like a, it's a true hobbyist film and it's a blast to work with. Yeah. It's a camera that you can take anywhere. Mark Faulkner's on and Mark, you made me a 3d slitter. Um, that was adjustable, 
but I don't think it did Minox size, did it? It didn't. It's a fairly simple thing to adjust in the file to print it out. But yeah, that yeah. could be done. They easily be done for sure. Between um, 3D printed slitters, that there's a bunch of options, whether you know someone like Maxwell suggested who could print one for you. I, I see a bunch of them on eBay. People are starting to sell them. A hack that I first learned from Adam Paul, but I've actually run into other people who've done this too, where he actually adapted a broken TLR to slice 120. Oh. So he basically m created a little plate and, and measured out where to put the razor blade and put the razor blade in the film plane. And then he would just load the film in the camera and just advance it from start to finish. And as the film is transporting through the TLR, it's slicing it. So I'm not saying that that's the best way to do it. That's just what he did, uh, you know, before. And we're talking about, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, 3D printing options are, are, are a lot better now than they used to be. But people have come up with with many different clever ways of cutting film down, whether whether it's a real simple 120 to 127, uh, whether you're looking to cut down some 828 film, like let's say for a Bantam, uh, or you're looking for 16 millimeter Minox film, there's a ton of options out there, which which is really awesome to see. You know, there is there is one really fantastic travel camera for medium format, and it's you know the best camera in the world. You know, I have to jump in and say it's 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 yeah, here we know comes. what's coming here. We already established. No, no, it's the Mamiya Seven. Come on, it's the Mamiya Six. How about the Mamiya Six? That's close, close. But the Mamiya 7, interesting enough, the Mamiya 6 is actually a really good option because yeah. it does, the, the lenses do actually sort of have to sort of click in and out, don't they? They, yeah. they sort of compact huh? themselves. Um, the Mamiya 7, they don't. So I have to give you that, that the Mamiya 6 is actually a forerunner. But for quality-wise, it's the Mamiya 7. I mean, seriously, a <laughs> rangefinder, you know, you've got the best lenses in the world. It's compact. It's light. You know, it's, it's, it just ticks all the boxes for pretty much any occasion. Is that really better <laughs> than the Fuji 617? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will veto that as a travel camera. <laughs> <laughs> Although, although if, if you could hike to the top of a mountain or something and get some panoramics with the ultimate panoramic camera, that would be cool. But I think the amount of uh, effort it would require to get it there would be uh, insurmountable, in my opinion. I mean, to be fair, I was thinking about bringing the medalist to Chicago this weekend. There so you we'll go. see if I, yeah, if that happens. Yeah, that's right. Mark's coming to visit me this weekend. Um, I'm going to be hitting up the... Uh, uh, I forget what they call it, Photorama. I don't know. It's, it's whatever the Chicago version of the show that Paul goes to. Um, it's in Elk Grove Village, um, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago. Bob Rodoloni is going to be there. I'm sure Vlad Kern's going to be there. If we're lucky, maybe Johnny Sisson will show up. I'm sure Hong Lee will be there. Um, but we're going to be there and uh, see if we could see any 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 people. But um, yeah, if you bring your medalist, that'd be cool. You know, I hear that there are a few camera shops in Tokyo. So I actually thought about flying over without a camera and then having to buy a camera there, whether it was going to be a wide Lux or something that I just can't find readily in the States. And that would be my choice of what to, to shoot in Tokyo. But then again, I saw somebody that was like taking bags of, of Argus C3s over to trade because uh, apparently they aren't very common in Tokyo and you can get some trade value in them. So you know, maybe I could take some Signets, maybe a couple of Argus, uh, you know, some U.S. made cameras over there. And, uh, uh, you know, sort of like that thing of you start with the toothpick and end up with a house. You know, maybe I can start with an Argus C3 and end up with a with a Leica. With a Mimia 7, clearly. 
like Anthony, um, Marcy Merrill, she's been on the show a couple times. Um, she's runs junk store cameras. She's actually in Japan right now. Uh, oh. I've seen a, a few pictures she's posted um, at the Imperial Palace at the gates and stuff like that. So after this show, shoot her a message and see if she has any recommendations on shops to visit. Oh, cool. Yes, I, I will. Yeah. Um, another another option for traveling, um, which is nice and compact. It's 35 millimeter. Um, I think everybody loves actually uh, shooting with this. A bit of a weird one, but it's like it. Yeah, you could consider taking a Kodak Retina, but this is the Zeiss Icon uh, Contessa, and I'm getting thumbs up from Anthony. Folds up into a nice little compact. This is actually a Paul Reibold purchase. Um, beautiful little camera to use. It's compact. So if you, you know, if you want something for 35 millimeter, Anthony, and it's nice and compact and it becomes like a secondary option, that that's not a bad option either. Actually, you know, Theo, I think Anthony has the companion to that one. I do. I had two of them and you got one and he got the other one. <laughs> and the, uh, um, the other camera that the last time I was in New York City, my primary camera was the, uh, the Voigtlander Vito 3, which is the folder that's based on the prominent that also has the Ultron lens. Uh, so... Um, you know, it's also a really nice rangefinder camera. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the Contessa is on my short list, the Contessa, the, the Vito three is on the short list. Um, still want to take the 10 X, but don't know if I want to risk it, but no, I think that, I think the Contessa is a beautiful camera. It's good. It's a good idea. It certainly get attention. And then of course I've got each of the super Icontas from the six, four, five up to the, uh, uh, the big one. And, uh, you know, I had thought about taking, uh, the six four five or the six by six because they're both among my favorite cameras. In terms of um, the Contessa, while I know they make great images, you know everybody always says, "Well, they're kind of like a Kodak Retina," but I guess for me, I'd rather just have a Kodak Retina. I've never been fond of the Contessa's control layout. The shutter release and the cocking lever are just like jammed in there in that tiny little space to turn uh, the shutter speeds. You have to like grip. There's only one spot where you can grip it. It's just, it's, it's a good camera. They make wonderful images. The build quality is very high, you know, Zeiss quality. But I, I just feel like the Contessa 35 has too many compromises that the, the Retina does not have. So uh, you, you're not going to sell me on that one. I'll, I'll buy the Mimi A7, Theo, because um, I'm sure it's a great camera. But uh, I, I, I would not bring a, a Contessa 35. Fair point. Uh, real quick, Miles had recommended flashback camera in Tokyo. Um, if you find the time, and um, and Mina was agreeing with Patrick on the the Zeiss Iconta series. And Avera. Oh, Avera, yeah. Now those are great cameras, but I've never found one that's not stiff that yeah, hurts your fingers. Good. Is it? Really Anthony, you loaned me yours, and it ripped the skin off your fingers. In fact, I got to the end of the roll, and to and, and he had recommended to me. Don't try to rewind the film because it's so tight. Like, just shoot the roll and then go into a dark room and open up the camera and just rewind the film by hand because his was really stiff. And I've yeah. since gotten two more and they were kind of the same way. Yeah, I have a, a, a the, the Vera one and the, the rewind. It's just got this like uh, knurled aluminum disc that you have to spend and it'll just rip right through your fingers. Uh, yeah. As it's about halfway through the roll and the tension starts picking up on it and it's really, really just that because I, I love the camera otherwise it changed. oh look I at that they the put wearer, a handle on it around the wearer three onwards this changed what i do love about those cameras the viewfinder is excellent on 
when when it they're clean, amazing. that is yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Very very nice viewfinder. Yeah, the Wearomatic has that Judas window as well, so it gives yeah. you. So you're about to say that, weren't you, Mark? Yep. That sort yep. Of <laughs> Nikon style, like tells you what settings are set down. Yeah. Yeah, I love those. I love the wear any any of the wearers. I've never really had any problems with the stiffness though. Um, maybe I've been lucky, really? but yeah. Yeah, I've I've had three, and they've all been well, two of my own plus Anthony's is the third one. They were all re. I mean, don't get me wrong, any camera can be stiff, but if you get the ones that have the circular back ones, they have an inbuilt uh, diopter. The older ones, they were just not. a single sort of gal- yeah. reverse Galilean. But um, um, I think I think they're really really nifty cameras. Yeah, oh, no, they I are agree. fantastic. And a fun fact about those is uh, a lot of people incorrectly call them a Zeiss Icon, and they are not. They are actually made in Jena at Carl Zeiss Jena. Actually made that camera. That's the only camera that they actually made in in any large quantities. Uh, I guess the story goes is after the Soviet Union kind of came in and took over East Germany, they assigned you know all the lens making to be out of Jena, but there were all these engineers that had nothing nothing to do. So they just decided to create their own camera with very little guidance from the East East German government. And that's what they came up with. So if the proper name for the Vera is Carl Zeiss Jena Vera, it is not a Zeiss Icon product. I bought this little book that's only in German. So it took me ages to try and sort of translate it um, using Google Translate. But it echoing what you were saying, it's the only camera that's branded Carl Zeiss. So it's it's the only one that's got the Carl yep. Zeiss stamp on it. Correct. And the other thing is, um, because of the Synchro Compor uh, licensing problem between East and West, those same engineers had to come up with a shutter that could go to 500 and above, not using the Synchro Compor style. So the press store was born, and it's the only one, I think it's similar to what Minolta did with the double shutter, the double capping, but this actually does get above 500 without yeah. reducing the um the available apertures for you it actually does get there because it doesn't have to open and close in the right. one cycle kodak did um, the same really, thing really cool. with the chevron and the high-end tourist that use the exact same concept where a normal leaf so what he's talking about is a leaf shutter we hopefully you've seen what a leaf shutter looks like the the blades have to open one direction stop and then make a complete opposite turn to close so like think of a windshield wiper, one motion, and then it has to go the other way. But with, with what he's talking about, the shutter blades spin in a 360 degree circle. And when they're spinning, that's when they open. But there's a second, like a capping shutter that has twin blades. So if you have a, the high-end tourist or a Chevron or one of these cameras, you'll notice that if you look at the shutter from one direction, there's two blades. If you look at the shutter from the other direction, there's the typical five or whatever there is. So that the actual shutter speed itself is is dictated by how fast the blades can spin in a complete circle. They don't have to stop reverse direction and, and go back the other direction. So you're able to achieve a faster shutter speed without doing what Minolta did and um, only only have it work at, um, at small apertures. I will say that if you've not played with one of these Vera cameras before, uh, when you see them, the first thing that almost anybody says is, my God, this could have been an Apple design 50 years before Apple was in mm. existence. As far as like a an industrial design that drew from like the best of Bauhaus, the best of mid-century modern sort of minimalist functionalism, uh, it is such a cool camera. Uh, it just it's There's something very pleasurable about, even though it does feel a little bit aluminum, a little bit tinny, uh, you have to get used to 
using a ring around the, the shutter, I mean, around the, uh, the, the lens to, to advance and cock the film, uh, advance the film, cock the shutter, excuse me. But it's just, they're just really cool designs. And it's just to prove what you just said, you know, I just came across this camera today. This is called the Minolta V3. More people have seen the V2, which has a top one two thousandth shutter speed, but the V3 goes to one three thousandth and it's a leaf shutter. The only way it's able to do that is by only opening at the, the smallest possible aperture, though. So, Mike, I, I, I recently got this Fujika 35EE that goes to one one thousandth. And I, yeah. I haven't heard anything about their shutter being any nope. kind of wonky, half opening, double. Like, do you know anything about the shutter story for that? I think that's a citizen shutter. Um, that definitely does not have any compromises. All they did was just boost this detention of the spring. Okay. I, don't hold me to this, but I believe the blades are made out of plastic or some incredibly lightweight material. So they were able to give it, it's like spinal tap, you know, the amps don't yeah, go, yeah, it goes and to they 11, go to 11. Yeah. It goes to 11. So yeah, there are a small number of cameras. Um, Fujika did a couple of them. Um, I, I think even Yashika for a short while did have a, a leaf shutter that did one one thousandth. But what they did was they uh, just pushed the limits to what the blades could move. Whereas Minolta was big with the Uniomat, um, the V2, the V3, where what they did was as you go to the highest speeds, if you actually watch the shutter blades, they're physically rotating as you're cocking the shutter. So they're yeah. still actually opening and closing at the same top speed. But because they're moved, it's it's really hard to describe without showing it. The gist is, is that you can only get small apertures at those fast speeds. Really, that's when you need it, though. You know, you're trying to freeze motion in bright sunlight. You're, you're probably stopping down your lens anyway, but you just need a little bit of extra speed. So it's probably not a huge, huge uh, compromise. But the fact that very few people ever did it, you know, proves that it really wasn't as, as necessary as maybe it probably sounds. But even in saying that, I think in some cases, brands like Polaroid leveraged it on purpose. So the S, I was listening to the um, instant camera guy who's a, um, a local um, technician, uh, sort of self-taught technician for SX-70s. I'm going to butcher this description, but Polaroid, because of the way that the SX-70 was built, couldn't put the shutter to move up and down as fast as a typical SLR. So they leveraged that that's that relationship between closing down the aperture and changing the way the blades moved and the shape of the blades to emulate having a faster shutter speed, even though it's not realistically any faster when you measure it mechanically. There are a few cameras with like a combined aperture shutter where it's it's just the shutter blades don't open all the way to get the right. small apertures. And Wasn't the Olympus pen like that? The pen EEs were like that? They just opened at a different size that way you didn't have all the sure shots there's a series of cameras that do that yeah there there actually were a, a decent number of them but for the life of me i can't recall which ones do that but it could be the shine on shinons um maybe some of the pens but um yes that was another way to do it too and usually you'll see that on less expensive cameras what they're trying to do is eke out whatever performance they can with a simpler design so i think we we talked quite a bit about travel cameras you know we, really great airport tips be friendly mark things make it as easy as possible uh, it's difficult to to travel with too many cameras at once my tip was i i just i can't i can't deal with too valuable of a camera or something overly complicated cuz you know while you're traveling you know you you no matter how much you think you're on your game you're going to mess up you're going to forget something whether it's what film is loaded or how to shoot something or or maybe break something 
but we've had a lot of demand, you know, from people asking us to talk about different, um, different topics. Uh, you know, I had a guy say we should talk more about shutters and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not anti shutter, but I just don't know what I could really talk about to any, to any extent there. Uh, we were joking about 110 cameras. Anthony, weren't you saying a little earlier that Rudy convinced you to pick up a couple 110 cameras? He did. I've picked up a whole bunch of 110 film from him and then two somewhat unique uh, Fuji 110 cameras. One with this kind of the wacky flash tower on it and the other one with the okay. big focusable lens. Yeah, I have one of those too. And then there's the Minolta SLRs. The 110, it was like the Mark 1 and Mark 2. Uh, of course, everybody knows about the Izahi Pentax 110. And I think, you know, you get you get the right kind. And, um, you know, Maxwell, you mentioned the, the Minox. You know, you can get really good results out of the right compact camera. I think you really got to choose your film stock wisely. Fine grain films are, are going to do much better. Um, I would probably not pick like a 3200 speed, super grainy film. Um, and try and run it through a tiny camera like that, maybe more like a, a, a microfilm, which has little to no grain would probably be good for that. You know, expired color probably isn't the best to go through those tiny little cameras. But uh, what kind of film did he give you? Everything. Okay. <laughs> probably just wanted to get <laughs> I'm over overwhelmed with 110 film. Yeah. I, I'll admit I reviewed a couple 110 cameras. I did the Canon 110 ED which has a fast F2 lens. It's got a rangefinder. You know, it's an optical rangefinder, just like a 35 millimeter wheel. It's got multiple um, multiple shutter speeds. It even, I have the ED, which has the date back. It can even imprint a date on the film. And I just, I as much as I tried, I couldn't, um, I don't know. I just, I couldn't get along with it. I did not enjoy the results. I gotta tell I my, my favorite 110 that I've shot is the Minox 110. Um, okay. It's got these like crazy barn doors, sort of like the Shannon Bellamy that open up. And it has an optical rangefinder in it and uh, a fairly sophisticated uh, auto aperture prior, aperture priority system. And uh, it's uh, it was I've gotten the best results from it. I, mean, I was like, it was honestly, most people would think they were 35 millimeter shots if, if I would show them the scans. Um, but they're fairly hard to hard to come by. Now, uh, what lens is on those uh, Minox 110s? Is it like a Minotaur, like on the uh, yeah. 35s? Yeah. Hmm. And you had a lot more success with those than the rollies oh and the rollies i'm i'm like oh for five on the roll 110s uh they're just those those the advanced system on that just does whether it's the lube that's gumming up on it or there's just bad plastic gears that are in it uh, i've yet to find a rolly 110 i had five new in the box that i was testing for a collector and not a single one uh, i think i got i got four frames between the five cameras uh just was not very satisfactory but the, but the, but the, but the Voigtlander 110 is actually an excellent camera. The the Vitourette. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the that's I was just about to ask you about that one. It's it's more reliable and uh and and is also very high quality. It's just it's a zone focus as opposed to being a rangefinder camera, but uh for a 110 camera that's probably my favorite all-around 110. What was it actually like by then Voigtlander had really ceased to be though by then what was it actually they were owned by rollerflex at that time okay. and i believe i've heard actually i've heard two stories i've heard one is that they were produced by balda and another that they were produced by everybody's favorite king yeah king king regula oh. yeah yeah i was thinking of balda because there was a little 35 compact that they branded yeah the Vito c yeah okay. what year yeah. anthony was that made this is late it's late in the 110 cycle hold on i can tell you 
Faultlander was owned by Zeiss from like 63, 64 until 72. And that's when they were, were moved under Roly. So I think they kept, so that it probably was mid seventies, if you might guess. Yeah. I've seen a story where they King made that. It was 1979. Yeah. Right. That's definitely in the Roly area era. Yeah, Foltlander is one brand that's been, you know, even though it's, you know, technically the oldest German optics brand, I mean, they have a corporate history that can go back to the 1700s. The Foltlander name has bounced around so many times. You know, there's the 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 Cosina, the Bessas from the 2000s, which Cosina didn't even own the Foltlander brand. It was owned by, I think, like Photo Quell or somebody. It was some yeah. German German retailer owned it. Or their parent company did, and then Cosina just licensed the name for the Bessa rangefinders, and you know who knows who owns it today, but I'm sure somebody does. One day we'll probably see a uh, an interchangeable film back digital camera with the Foltlander name. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm uh, not even a big rangefinder fan, but I I have a Vitessa and I have a uh, Vitomatic too, and I. I feel, and I have some of their SLRs from the yeah. 50s, the uh, leaf shutter SLRs. I, I didn't want to have so many, but it, I had to go through about four to get a couple that worked. But the fit and finish on Floatlanders from the 50s is, I, 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 I mean, I've never owned a Leica, but I, I think it's probably as good as any German camera ever has been. They're just... That Bessomatic is a beast. It's just, it's really, really, it's a tank. It's absolutely well-made. Yeah, I have a, a show and tell. I'll have pictures of this. So I have a nice leather case here. You, you probably can't see it, but it's embossed with Foltlander. But we'll we'll look. You can see the back of it, so you could probably yeah. figure out it's a it's a Bessematic. But what kind of lens would be mounted it's got the with Bessemar? There, it's, it's yep. got a Zoomar. 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 I I was never that attracted to the Zoomar. I guess uh, because the the primes are also very nice and you know smaller. The primes are great, but this thing is just. If you don't ever pick one up, Howard, like if you see one, yeah. just run away. Because the second you touch it, you're like, I need to own this. You know, it's okay. <laughs> it's got a push to pull zoom. Um, yeah. it, it's basically like a 2x zoom. I mean, it doesn't do much, but it's a consistent F28, you know, across the, the, the range. Uh, I mean, this thing is is heavy. This is a solid chunk of metal and glass. Uh, it's a lot of fun, man. There's just something about putting this thing to your eye. Um, Anthony loves the best somatic. I'm a huge fan of these. I agree with you. The fit and finish is fantastic. Um, it's, it's as high as in my opinion, any German camera maker was in the fifties. I don't know if this is true or if it's just, I got lucky. You know, I mentioned earlier, I've never had a Vera that wasn't stiff. Well, I've had a lot of really good luck with Bessomatics. The leaf shutters almost always work on these. I don't know if that they did anything different. Maybe they use a different kind of lube, you know, like Topcon leaf shutter SLRs almost never work. Whereas the Bessomatics, I've, I've had really good luck with them. And and I even have the Ultramatic, which was their higher end version. Um, and I don't like that camera nearly as much as the Bessomatic. That's, in fact, I would even go as far as to say the Bessomatic is the best leaf shutter SLR I've ever shot. I agree. Now, I will say, Mike, you uh, compared to your Zoomar, though, my Super Dynarex 350 5.6 makes that look like <laughs> a pancake lens. Is that the one with a, a 90 foot minimum focus distance? Absolutely. The minimum focal <laughs> distance on it is 90 feet, and it can still do fine focus at, uh, at a mile. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is that, a, is that a mirror lens, Mark? Or what is that? What is that, Mark? This is a Russian lens. 
uh, made in the USSR. It's like a, I forget how many. Is it the Rubin? Uh, let's see here. It's the MTO 1000A. Okay. Yeah. That's the mirror lens. Yeah. Yeah. So is that your travel lens, Mark? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, this is exactly what I take when I go on trips, you know, just uh, get an adapter, set it up with Olympus Mark Pen. Mark doesn't, great need, doesn't need to leave. He doesn't need to leave the hotel room. He can just get the sights in by sitting <laughs> exactly. in the balcony. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, I always thought the Super Dynarex lens was actually designed to go on a tripod to take photos across the Berlin Wall. You know, because it's that minimum 90 foot focal distance. You're shooting across the wall. It doesn't matter. You don't need to shoot stuff that's on your side of the wall. You're shooting the other side of the wall. Mike, you and Rudy sent me three of the Russian copies of that Zoomar lens. Oh, did we? The Rubens? Yes. There were three of them. Two of them worked. Or no, one of them worked. Two of them were, uh, shall Thumbed we say, up. parts parts lenses. I have one that Vlad Kern actually sourced from me. He had a buyer in Russia. That was my so the Rubin one is even though people say it's a copy of the zoomer, it is not. It has a different focal length. It does not have the push to zoom. It is similar. Um, and because the the best somatic uses the DKL mount, the decal mount, which is similar to what like the Kodak Retina Reflex has, um, the the um the zoomers typically came with the DKL mount. They also came with the um the exact amount, and I think you could get them in the M42, but that's really, really rare. But of the Soviet version, that, that Rubin 1 only came on a camera called the Zenit 6. The Zenit 6, the, the Zenit 4, 5, and 6. The bodies are fairly similar. Uh, the 5 had a motor drive. The 4 and 6 were basically the same, but the only difference was with the 6, you got the Rubin lens. So it had the Russian version of the DKL mount. And, and Vlad had found a seller who was taking those lenses and readapting them back to M42 mount. So I bought one. He actually got it shipped to me from Russia. This is a couple of years ago. And I mounted it to a Zenit. And I mean, it, it actually performed really good. Like it was it was cool shooting like a mid-century zoom lens. You know, we take we take zoom lenses for granted. And the the math to create the glass to decide the optics for a, for a zoom lens is really difficult. And, you know, we, we could do that today with the aid of computers. But, you know, back then when people are doing everything on pencil and paper with, you know, slide rules and and, you know, straight up hardcore math to come up with the the designs to build this stuff was just really, really hard. So that's why you didn't really see too many zoom lenses until, you know, really the 60s or the 70s is when they actually started to get good. But the zoom are um, and to a little bit lesser degree, the Rubin one, you know, actually have a uh, a pretty good, pretty good reputation. But I, I want to come back to Mark's MTO. He has the 1000 millimeter. That's a mirror lens. Um, the, the proper name for that is cat eye dioptic. And what's interesting is, you know, we always think of the Germans and the Japanese as being these innovators and in making lenses. But the first person to actually come up with the idea of a mirror lens was actually a Russian um, named Mats, Mat, Maksutov. Dmitry, Dmitry, yeah, Matsukov. So a lot of people, he, he was actually making it for telescopes but they were able to adapt that to a still photography lens. The MTO was one of the earlier designs for it, and they're really quite good. For a while there, Spiratone was importing them in the United States, and they didn't hide that they were Russian lenses. If you get an opportunity to pick up one of the MTO lenses, whether it's the 500 like I have or the 1000 that Mark has, the optics on them are excellent. Like Vivitar made a couple... Um, mirror lenses you know obviously nikon did too but they're prohibitively expensive but if you could find 
one of the 500 to 1000 MTO lenses and you're interested in mirror lenses, that's actually a great lens to try out because the optics on them are quite good. And you can get that donut bokeh that some people go crazy for that those lenses are famous for. Let's make sure you get a really strong tripod, however. I've had a couple of near uh, major mishaps trying to use this thing. Now, does yours have the, the set of filters? Did it come with the filters? It did not, unfortunately, no. I would love okay. to get my hands on that. Yeah. Yeah. If a tip, if, if you're looking to get one of those lenses, try to find one in the original case. It's really easy to find because it's a big wooden box. And uh, if you could get one of the MTO, either the 500 or 1000, it should come with a set of filters, but they're really cool. Yeah. If you want a more budget version, I got given uh, a 500 mirror lens uh, uh, Pentax came out. It, this thing is phenomenal. I stick it onto my, again, on my micro four thirds, if I'm not using it on a Pentax camera. And uh, when the moon is like full, full moon and you've got, you know, the super moon coming through. Um, I can see I've got a picture. We've got Howard's got that picture right behind him at the moment, actually. Uh, That's through an 800 millimeter meat telescope, by the way, which I just got. So on, on a micro four thirds, that 500 becomes a thousand, and it's just superb in terms of you know what you can actually reach with it. Grant you, it's not like the the same quality as the Nikon or, or one of those, but it, it's a good budget version. I was just going to ask about. There's a Nikon 500 millimeter reflex. I think it's F8. And I often see uh, a Tamron. I think it's F8, or there might be two versions, two different aperture versions. And they're all uh, not very expensive. Even the Nikon branded one is not that expensive. Uh, I, I wonder what they're like. There's an F8, which is probably affordable, but there's an F56 that I promise you is not. Yeah. Okay. I, I had a 5.6 a five, from, from uh, Kurt. That's an expensive one. Yeah, they were a little more. But, you know, as far as mirror lenses, when you go find a used one, generally speaking, they're in mint condition because no one ever used it. Right. They're they're one of those things that everyone thinks they need to have one. And they'll go out and take a picture of the moon or, or something. And then they never use them again. The, the best, though, that I've ever found were the three different Vivitar series ones. There was a 400, a 500, and a 600. And they were called solid cats. And they were excellent lenses. They were the fit and finish and the optic was very good on them. Of course, I mean, optically, a mirror lens is nothing but a set of mirrors. Right. So there isn't there isn't much in the way of optics. That, no, it's uh, like they're usually like three elements. It's like yeah. three pieces of glass and a mirror. Well, the solid cats were the were the were the absolute best as yeah. far as, as uh, the quality of the lens. Another thing about mirror lenses that I found interesting, they all focus beyond infinity. And while that seems like a defect, that's actually by design because there's they're, they're so precise in terms of um, precision, you know, the different mounts, because usually th those those lenses were made for a multitude of mounts. And I, and I also heard that they're, they're one kind of lens that's affected by temperature. Um, if you try to shoot them in, in, in the warmth or in, this, in the cold, that actually can throw off the focus accuracy. So they intentionally design them that they'll focus beyond infinity. And so you can't you can't get spoiled, point the thing at the moon, turn the focus ring as far as it'll go. You will not get sharp pictures. Yeah, they, they do what they call focus breathing and they will they will change as uh, yeah. Depending on the atmospheric conditions and, and right. the temperature. I did not know that. That's very interesting. My, my question was actually along the lines of focusing as well. The, the, I noticed the Pentax one, at least, has a macro. It calls itself a macro lens as well. And I can't for the life of me work out why you would want a 
500 millimeter mirror lens to try and do macro work because it reduces the minimum focus distance from like 50 feet down to like 20. <laughs> That's probably photographing those uh, dangerous uh, murder hornets, right? Well, so it, it lets you isolate the background. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing a flower that you want, you just absolutely don't want anything but uh, but just with one tiny bit of the the plant yeah. in focus. It it lets you isolate it because I mean, you got an f eight, so you got very little. I mean, your depth of field is what it is. You're not going to get any more. Yeah. That makes sense. When I go up to um, Manning Park, there's the Alpine Meadows, and you're not allowed to venture off the path because if you step off the path and step onto a flower, it literally takes 20 years for that flower to regrow because of the altitude. So you have to use a long lens with an extension tube or a mirror lens with that close focus capability in order to photograph things a little bit closer. And here's a tip for you. If you, the one to look for, if you ever see one in a thrift shop, be sure to buy it. It's the, the Minolta Rocor 250 millimeter F5.6 mirror. They, they are tiny. I think they were $219 or something new because they couldn't sell them. And now they're up into seven and $800 and you can't find them. It's funny how certain lenses over the years that were once value lenses have gone the complete opposite direction. And you know, it's like the standard prism for the Nikon F used to be throwaway devices. And now people pay a premium for them because there's so few of them. So I would suspect, Paul, back then, a 250 millimeter mirror lens was was very low demand. Yeah, but, it was. I mean, it wasn't. What what was the point? I mean, it was a 5.6. Right. You could get a 200 F4 that uh, would have been much more useful. Yeah. Uh, since we're talking about some kind of strange lenses and interesting lens designs, um, a lens that, that I got, actually Paul had to send it to me. It's a one-of-a-kind Minolta. It's called the um, the Rokor X. It's a 40 to 80 millimeter, so it's a 2X zoom. It's a solid F2.8 design. Some people call this the gearbox lens. So it's, it's, a, it's a typical looking zoom made in the 70s, but it has a box that protrudes out the side with a dial on the side. And the dial is used to change the focus. And then in the center of the dial is a lever, which changes the zoom. I don't have it mounted to a camera, but if you have it mounted to a camera, you're holding it on the side, turning it. And you see, you don't, there's no barrel, like a typical lens where you focus it on the barrel. It's a gearbox on the side of the lens that um, allows it to individually move. And I, I did a little bit of research on this lens. I, I do plan on writing a review of it and try to get a little more technical detail on it if I could find more information. But Minolta kind of had to think outside the box when designing this lens because back then, you know, the technology to create good zooms wasn't what it is now. And most early zooms had um, what do they call it, verifocal, where the the as you as you zoom, the focus changes. So like you could you could be at the wide angle, focus precisely on your subject, but if you zoom, you're no longer in focus. And that's a lesser design that's just easier to construct. So Minolta was trying to figure out the best way to avoid that and come up with a fixed aperture where the, it's f two eight at both the, the the narrow and the wide. Um, and that was the result of it. It was it was a I mean it's a, it's a great lens actually. It works really well. It makes really good images. I've played with it a little bit, but it's such a quirky design that it, no one else did it. And even Minolta, that was the only time they had a lens that was like that. But um, I just I love the history. You know, whether it's the, the Zoomars, the Rubens, the MTO mirror lenses, um, you know, this thing, you know, just just all the things we take for granted 
you know, the, these Chinese lenses that are coming out like 24 millimeter F14 lenses. You know, it used to be the Canon Dream lens, the 0.95 was like crazy. Like nobody made a lens that fast. Or very few people did. Now you, you could just go on, on Amazon and order a, a TT Artisans F095 lens. You know, what, what we're able to do now with computers and recreating optical formulas that w- would have been fantasy back in the 60s and 70s is just really impressive. So um, we're at, I don't know, we're at a good point in the show. Um, we, we've covered a wide variety of topics. Like always, we never really know what direction we're going to go into. I would have never expected us to talk about mirror lenses or or, or strange uh, you know, focal lengths and stuff like that. Does anybody here have anything new, any new gas they've picked up or anything they want to share real quick? Or Before we get to that, what would you think if we just sort of spitballed, since this is the first episode of our new season, uh, maybe spitball some ideas for shows that people would like to see? Because I know that there was some chatter about that in the meeting chat off to the side. Uh, maybe we can drum up some support here and then get feedback in either on the Facebook or the Instagram groups to see what people are interested in hearing about from this year. I know that um, I wholeheartedly endorse the idea that we do a show that focuses on Yashica and Contax SLRs. Um, I don't think we've really done anything about them. No, yet. we haven't. And honest to God, Yashica is the next, the brand I've been chomping at the bit to do. The problem I'm having is I know three people that I think would be perfect, you know, like a good, like they have a lot of background knowledge on them and none of them are willing or able to do it. So I'm not saying we have to have an expert. Cause we've certainly, we've certainly winged it on many shows before, but I do like it when, like when we had, you know, Ray on and talked about yeah. Mamiya, you know, having someone that could throw a little bit more context, you know, and tell us some of the stories we don't know, I think makes those shows great. Uh, but I'm with you. I definitely want to do a Yashica show on the surface. You think, Oh yeah. Okay. They made a couple TLRs, you know, they made the electro, but you know, Yashica was like the dominant TLR maker in Japan. I mean, they, you know, everybody thinks of like the Ricoh Diacord and the, Min- the Minolta Auto Chords, and they were great cameras, but Yashica was out selling them like three to one. That was my other idea was that we've never done a dedicated TLR show. No, we haven't. We really haven't talked about Roloflex. I think that that would be another good topic to consider. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'd be curious to hear what the, the rest of our guests would like to see for the rest of the year. A second, a TLR show. Well, I, I wrote in the chat, I'm interested in Fuji, not not just the cameras, but the corporation and how did they distribute in America? I don't know much about that story, but Paul Paul wrote that you you may actually be able to get an expert in that. And so that would be a good future topic. I agree. How about a, a sub mini episode? That's kind of what I'm really would be looking forward to. I think that's a great idea too. I know Bob Rodoloni. He's been on the show many, many, many times. He's Mark the Nikon Faulkner. guy. Mark's a huge fan of sub mini. You know, I, I know quite a few people. Um, I picked up a mini cord, which is a neat little uh, sub miniature TLR. It's got a little angled viewfinder at the top. Um, I've never shot it. I've got I've got an Adixa 16 I'm trying to load up. That's interesting. There's a British TLR called a microcord, but it's full size. Yep. I have one of those too. That's just a normal six by six TLR. Cord is a uh as as common as a suffix as flexes <laughs> with cameras. I frequent a camera shop up in Louisville, Kentucky at Chuck Rubin Photographics. Um, and I uh, was helping him clean out part of his back room a few months ago and I found I'm forgetting the name I'm on the spot here but it's the 16 millimeter uh camera that is uh it's a panoramic so it's got the swing lenses it's uh it's not vera wide visco wide visco wide that's what it is 
that's one that I've been thinking about picking up for a little while now. And Mark Faulkner is able to pick one up, and so is Mike, and so is <laughs> everybody else within a, within about <laughs> ten seconds or so. I had it. two a few weeks ago. <laughs> the Viscoide, it's not just the Viscoide; it's the STD. So Maxwell, Ooh. if if you really want, what does that you stand should, for Mike? You sh- you should be looking for an STD, Maxwell. You really want one. Is that going to show up for the inappropriately named camera? Really That's what I was going to say. The ST. We should do an episode on the, the best, worst cameras we've ever used. That'd be a good one. Mark, mm. have you shot your Viscoide yet? No, I was actually waiting to get another uh, canister for it. My uh, The puppy had gotten a hold of one of the two, and so I had to order a new canister online. Now that I have it, I'm planning on using it. You're, you're going to be <sighs> here this weekend. I have four of Actually, I have five. Because I have I have an unopened magazine too, so all right, maybe I will. Because I, I the one that came says it was unopened, but it was clearly open. I'm not sure it will still work, but I will uh, I'll bring it this weekend. Okay, Mark's coming to play this weekend. Maybe I'll see some people that have been on the show before. Um, I love the idea of doing a Fuji show. Um, Fuji has a potential to be just as equal film as digital. You know, even though we do spend a lot of time on film, you know, as as you've seen, we're we're all fans of digital as well. I definitely, you know, surprisingly, we've never dedicated a show to Soviet cameras either. You know, Vlad Kern has not been on the show since we were in the single digits. So I, I want to get him back on, um, see if we could eke some new stories that haven't been told before, because that's just such a rich photo industry. We've People have been asking for a large format show. One thing, I, I do want to put this disclaimer out there. You know, I, I incessantly remind people that this is the open source show and we depend on you guys for topics. I am flattered at the, the the belief that many of our listeners have that Paul, Theo, Anthony, and I know everything there is to know about cameras, but we really don't. There's been many times people have proposed a topic that it's like, hey, that sounds interesting, but I don't know what I'm going to say about it. You might be surprised to know I have never to this very day ever shot a single large format camera at all. So um, if, if you want to hear a whole Camerosity episode where Mike doesn't say a word, that would be one. So please believe me, there are topics I am game. I would be interested. I would like to learn some of this stuff too, but you know, we don't know everything. So we do, we do actually need you guys that do want to talk about something uh, to come on and, you know, kind of help us along. Cause I, like I said, anything's on the table. It's just, we may not actually know a lot about what some of the suggestions are. Uh, we're scouring the world for King regular experts. King regular experts. We want to get Robert Shanebrook back on. There's the recent announcement Kodak made of their commitment to continuing to make film for as long as there's demand. And I was talking to him. Well, for one, he let me know that his book, Making Kodak Film, had actually gone out of print for a while, uh, but he's resumed selling it. So he has new um, new books in stock. And uh, I talked to him Well, what we were on our August break. So it's actually been a couple of weeks. I need to reach back out to him. But uh, we want to kind of do a follow up. Um, and kind of see the state of the, the photography industry, film photography industry now. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we haven't done a Euro episode. It's been over a year, you know, um, we, we've had great engagement with some of our German uh, listeners in the UK. You know, we've had a couple South African people call us too. So there's a lot of people. Uh, I, in fact, uh, the, I had gotten an email from a guy in Norway that wanted to talk about shutters. And um, I, I thought that was a great idea, but um, you know, to get someone from Norway on with their time zone is just kind of difficult. So, Mina, you have any any suggestions for us? 
there were a couple of suggestions I popped into the chat, I think, earlier on. A couple of them, yeah, are very much lightning round topics. Um, oh, the I one also, that got away, right? Yeah, the one the one that got got away and sales remorse. I was having a lot of sales remorse over the weekend, having cycled through a series of cameras in the last 12 to 18 months. It, one of them was actually um, a Leica Flex, and this goes back to Theo's comment a couple of episodes ago around trying to source a Leica R body that works. So eventually I actually got a Leica Flex again um, because I just had enough of the electronics. I was like, no, nope, it's fine. I'll just Is go that an SL? Mechanical. That's, yeah, the the first SL. So just yeah. the, the SL, not the two. I don't know if it was you, Mike, or this. it was this podcast. It may have been the CCR when they were talking about the Nikon F locking when the, when the mirror goes down. That was us. Was It was you guys, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And I was... As you know, as you do, you're fiddling around with your cameras, and I realize that the flex does it as well. You does can't it? move the mirror. Right. So what he's talking about is if you take the lens off a Nikon F, and apparently the Leica Flex is the same way. Yeah. You cannot you physically mirror. raise the mirror; it is locked. So um, that's done to prevent any kind of bounce. You know, a lot of mirrors when they go up and down, they bounce a little bit. So there's like a catch on those cameras that catch it. And Bob Rodoloni explained it that even with the motor drive mounted to the original Nikon F, it releases the lock, the mirror flips up, shutter fires, mirror flips back down, lock, unlock, mirror flips back up, you know, and it kind of goes through that cycle and it's able to do that without any, any bounce whatsoever. And um, even as recently as the F2, they got rid of that. So if you have a Nikon F2, take the lens off, you can you can bounce the mirror with your finger. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. You can't do it with the flex. Don't do no, that with, don't with do a it. lot of force. I, but if, I'm if sure you want... it'll crack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the, so that's cool. I did not know that, the Leica flex. But it doesn't surprise me though either. Yeah, the way that it just comes all the way down and does not, and you can't feel it vibrating either. So no. on slower speeds, when I shoot at like an eighth or a, or a quarter, it definitely doesn't reverberate in the body. And it's quite a thick right. body as well. The, the other topic that um, that I that Howard yours is very similar to what I was having in mind, which was how many cameras have you bought more than once? It's actually a whole format. I I always I was talking to a friend over the weekend, saying to him, I think I've accepted that I'm just romanticizing the rangefinder, but I buy them over and over, and I enjoy holding them and and like the 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 kinesthetic appeal, but I don't enjoy the output. Like, even though I love the way they look, rangefinders don't seem to produce, for me, the output that I would want. Um, and I think it's because, you know, you're, you're contending with slightly different composition. You're not getting an SLR-style composition. Uh, what, what I meant by the question, how many cameras have you owned more than once? Not, not in terms of, like, sometimes you're a collector, you, you want a black one and a chrome one of the same thing. I meant how many times have you bought something sold it on had had seller's remorse bought another one i've bought the nikon f4 four times i've bought the fm2 three times and the f4 four times although they're slrs (laughs) they've never really meshed with me have you ever bought the exact same camera back (laughs) paul yes paul's done that oh you have okay i've done it a number of times i bet i've owned 20 hasselblads the same one no, the same different, different ones back and oh, okay. forth, just okay. constantly. But, yeah, t- talking about you know seller's remorse and cameras that well, so far I haven't bought repeatedly, but I uh, my my very silky sweet 
uh, Leica M3 was part of my trade to Paul for the, the G617. And I was like, oh, I, I've got so many range finders and I'm never going to be able to you know, afford all the lenses that I want for the, the Leica. And I'm really focused on the contacts. And then Paul starts posting these like M2s and M3s. And I look at them and think, oh God, I missed that camera. Maybe I should, maybe I should sell a few things and talk to Paul. Maybe I need an M2. Anthony, uh, say, seriously, save yourself some money. You're a, <laughs> you're a fan. You're a fan of the, the Foatlander brand. I know they're not real Foatlanders, but seriously, you should check out one of the Bessas, the yeah. two the Cosina Bessas. The viewfinder on those are glorious. I know. I, I, I mean, evaluated a, a passel of them for, for Paul yeah. about two months ago. If, uh, yeah. Oh, you, okay. So you have shot one then. Well, I played around with them. I didn't shoot okay. it, but it made sure it was all working. You'll find them. They're a hell of a lot cheaper than a Leica M. If you love rangefinders, you can get them in the M mount. You can get them in the M39 mount. They even make a contacts mount version. The, if if you want a, a nice rangefinder that's reliable, uh, those you know have metering, you know, so they're even a little bit more modern, um, but they're a heck of a lot cheaper. I hope whoever ended up with my M3 appreciates how nice that camera was. Maybe you'll buy it back. If it's one camera that I definitely do miss and I would buy back in a heartbeat and I can't find them in Australia for whatever reason, it's the Contax RTS2. Can't find it. RTS2 is great. Stay away from the RTS3. That camera is so over That's motor-driven, right? Like 100%. It's got it's complete, yeah. yeah, it's completely electronic. Those cameras are just going to die no matter what. But the RTS2 is fairly robust, as is the original version. But I want to make a recommendation to you, Mina. If you want to give a rangefinder one more try, one that I, I love, and it's it's I don't know how easy you could find it, but look for an Agatha Carrot. I There's have the, the four. The Agatha that's Carrot not the same. four, which right, is not the same. It doesn't have the, the two same. windows. Correct. Yep. You need one of these. that So it has the two half windows. And mm. I have terrible vision. I don't know if that's your problem. But with rangefinders, I do often struggle with the tiny patches. And what I like about the Carat, and then there's an Ansco version called the Caromat, but I, I suspect it's going to be even harder to find in Australia. But these cameras, the rangefinder and the viewfinder is the exact same window. So you right. basically have a top half of an image and a bottom half of the image. And when you move them to line them up perfectly, that's when your rangefinder's in focus. There's no beam splitter. Uh, so it's like... It's like your actual view is the wedges, yes. not the wedges are flicking. Yeah. Okay. Right. But it's full size. So you see the whole image. So you compose and you focus with the rangefinder in the exact same window. And they're prisms. There's no beam splitters. So it's a very yep. bright image. Uh, the, the issue with these cameras, though, unfortunately, which is the reason a lot of people don't recommend them, is they, they're green goo Agfa cameras. So the lubricant that was used on the helix on these almost and it always hardens so you do need to find one that's been serviced that's that cement problem right like it Correct. just comes yeah. up to the point yeah all right but if you find a carrot that's working and smooth i promise you if you're hesitant or, or rangefinder averse averse <laughs> this this is the rangefinder to get i love these cameras and i wish more companies made them like this and when they went to the ag for four or the carrot four that went to a traditional beam splitter, it ruined the entire benefit of the whole camera for me, at mm. least. I did like the lens, like the Sologon 50 F2 is, yeah. is very underrated. And yep. for whatever reason, not only did they cheapen out on that viewfinder or rangefinder mechanism, but I don't know why, but they went down to a 300th of a second shutter. Whilst I think the older ones are like the retinas, they're a 500th, a typical 
you know, 500 speed. The four went went down to 300. Yeah. Mean the next time we meet up, I can bring my carrot along so you can have a bit of a play if you like. Well, you know, the next camera market's in October, so I'll see you then. Yeah. So have you two actually met before? Yeah, once or twice on a photo walk okay. and at the camera market. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, I, I it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm glad to be back. Um, as you guys have heard, we have a wide variety of topics that we're going to go over. Uh, we never know what order things are going to be and who knows what's going to come up. I have a list of people. I don't like to say their names because it'll jinx it. And there's a huge chance it'll never happen. But I'm always trying to reach out to people who I think would be great to talk to. Interesting people. I love having the, the diverse topics that we talk about, brand specific shows. Anything's on the table. So if you have a suggestion for us, we haven't talked about it. There might be a reason. Again, I am flattered that you guys hold us in such high regard that we know everything there is to know. Well, we do not. So if there's something that you've heard us like avoid, there's a good chance we just don't have a lot to say about it. So please come and um, and, and teach us something, too, because um, one of my favorite things about the show is all the things that I learned, too. So and I, I, I feel like I speak for the other guys, too, in that as well. We're going to get back to our normal two week cadence of recording so today is monday the 18th we'll try to get this episode out by the end of this week uh we will be back with episode 56 on monday october 2nd so look for the show announcement you know a couple days before that like we typically like to do uh we welcome anybody uh we would love to hear some some people new to film photography jim gray uh, another blogger friend of mine and theo's did a recent survey of readers of his site you know, and ask them to reveal their age and profession. And uh, it wasn't a surprise that like 60% of the people that read his age are uh, baby boomers or older Gen X. And the most common occupation is retired. So um, I, I would love to get some more younger people that, to, to join us and, and just talk about film photography because um, it's such a fun subject and you keep hearing about how there's this big resurgence. So please join us. On October 7th, I'm going to be in Atlanta for the KEH Film Stock, Ooh. which is uh, uh, sort of like a gathering of the hippest of the youngest uh, YouTubers and Instagram influencers. And then I'll just be like, you know, the fly in the ointment, the, you know, the old guy with the Kodak medalist around his neck. Is that where they open up their retail shop for people to buy stuff from like the warehouse? Uh, well, they, they now have a full retail shop at the warehouse. Okay. Where you can actually like get on the computer and call up anything and they'll have somebody run it out from the, okay. from the depths. But no, this is going to be a, uh, like a guided photo walk through the core of, of, of Atlanta, starting at the Pont city market. And then a, uh, sort of a massive beers and camera at one of the local brew pubs. Awesome. Uh, and, and I know that Atlanta film company and I think Cinestill and, uh, several, uh, camera manufacturers and, and, and film manufacturers and distributors will be there as well. Yeah. So look, look for the old guy with the camerosity yellow t-shirt and, uh, I'll be there. All right. Some weird collection of cameras yeah. uh, in, in my old stomping grounds. Well, that sounds like fun. If I, if I may add just one last thing, I, uh, I wanted to very, very quickly, uh, shill a, uh, store that I've been sort of helping out with. If you're in uh, Louisville, Kentucky or anywhere around there, I would highly, highly recommend Chuck Rubin photographics. I've been, uh, not working for him, but sort of forcing my way into helping him, uh, with, with, uh, his store in the last few months. And it's just, it's a treasure trove of things. Uh, so, uh, if you're in Louisville, Kentucky, go there. Awesome. It's great. Yeah. Chuck's a good guy. You're going to, you'll, 
you, you, you can't go wrong buying something from Chuck. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Well, if you're ever in those shops and, you know, you can do a bit of work with them to do, to, you know, inv create inventories, there are camera enthusiasts down under who are absolutely screaming for stuff because not a whole lot came down here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got trash bags, or he, he once told me he had a trash bag of just uh, Connie Omega dark slides. Send a trash bag, Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much. Uh, we're glad to be back. We will see you guys in two weeks, and we'll have the show out in a couple days. So you guys have a good rest of your night. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. All right, there's four people in the waiting room. Let's. We should probably get started. You're right, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you were right. You said four people in the in the chat in the oh, Facebook yeah. thing. I meant just the four of us, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're classified as callers, unless I've been demoted somehow. <laughs>